I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and the multi-hyphenate Laura Desiree, burlesque performer and erotic journalist. There was a very odd trend in the early 2000s that, like other trends we've covered on this show, exploded, got beaten into the ground, and then became a punchline. If you're familiar at all with the movie and the aesthetic of Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, then you'll know that for almost a decade, bands, movies, and fashion were striving to emulate a classic burlesque aesthetic, often with a circus tinge. One of our movies today deals with the end point of that trend and may even have directly caused the downfall that hit in the late 2000s. The idea of pornography and the blasé discussion of it being mainstream with the release of movies like Zack and Miri Make a Porno in 2007. Now, Laura, I'm going to make the bold assumption that you are both alive and professionally active in the late 2000s. So what's your take on what the mainstream media was purloining from burlesque and adult entertainment at the time? I was absolutely active uh, during these years and both in burlesque and starting to explore sexual expression through photography, film, hosting a lot of really crazy cabaret-styled live stage performances at this time. There was an absolute fascination with the idea of mainly women in very colorful, very frilly uh, styles of lingerie. And I think that there was a very limited understanding of what burlesque was at this time. It was really an aesthetic that was just so exciting. It was seeing less clothing, but with a, a an homage to the glamorous looks of, say, the 40s and 50s. I, I, I really think that it didn't go much further than an aesthetic. And you can tell in the films we'll Certainly be discussing <laughs> today that you're not, yeah. yeah, you're not, you're not going into depth, uh, looking to tell the story of these individuals lives or the experience or the stigma they may have lived with because we weren't there yet uh, as society having this conversation. We were so dazzled by this candy-colored world. So it really was a powerful moment for, for visuals. And um, and I have a lot to say about burlesque in particular when it comes to visuals <laughs> and just how how poorly some decisions were yeah. in the filmmaking when trying to uh, introduce audiences to what burlesque as an art form is. But at this point, it was a visual. I don't feel that we were anywhere near talking about how we digested it, how we felt about it, or how we felt about people that did occupy mm-hmm. these professions it in the feels past. Like a, it feels like an agent provocateur commercial where there, you know, Victoria's yes. Secret has always been huge, but it was all about just bringing the runway to a film and the understanding of neo-burlesque and what burlesque is as an art form, as a feminist art form, not just for women and people who identify as women, but just a talking back to the audience and taking control. It's just 
not there. If we think about burlesque from the 1890s, like that's that's what it was, the hoochie coochie dance and yelling at your audience and belittling them. And that's certainly <laughs> not in Right. There's always been a, a political yeah. tone. Yeah, there's always been a, a political tone. And that's because it is a, a governance of one's body. It is ownership of one's mm-hmm. body and, and the joy and the power in sharing that. And again, you don't get any of that in burlesque, the film. You get a, a lot of things to look at. Your eyes are moving across the screen. There's so much glitter in your fucking face. I mean, we've kind of seen this as we've done the show, like um, looking at the girls gone wild idea of empowerment of like, you know, you're really owning your body in that way. And it's like, no, you're not. You've completely lost the, lost it. And we're seeing that translated into movies like Bring It On, where like yeah. there's a whole um, scene that's aimed at young women to be like, this is fun and flirty and this makes you sexy. And then, of course, you go into the pop world and you have bands like um, uh uh, the Spice Girls. Of course, I forget <laughs> the name of the Spice Girls. But, um, you know, they're going for uh, this whole, like, you go girl, but there's still, like, a, a sexuality to it. And the logical progression of that then becomes the Pussycat Dolls, mm-hmm. who are all about this burlesque aesthetic, if not necessarily burlesque. But it's catering, catering more to a different audience of that kind of thing. Like, burlesque, I feel there's a more well-rounded audience for it. Like, it's more mm-hmm. playful. It's more fun. Um, it's more of a, a, a show. And this isn't to take anything away from people who do uh, exotic dance. But there's a very different audience for burlesque yes. than there is for exotic dance. They're Absolutely. two different. Things. Absolutely, actually, what you're saying different art yeah, forms. And, and what you're saying about that that moment in time is actually uh, discussed so thoroughly in a book that came out by Ariel Levy called "Female Chauvinist Pigs," and yes. it's really about that movement yes. of women trying to, you know, say that this is empowering to be a part of these movements of like Girls Gone Wild and, you know, having their bachelorette parties mm-hmm. at strip clubs. But the the reality is is that so much of it really. In this book, we talk about it being almost performative for the sake of imitating men and how men would interact Mm -hmm. and enjoy these kinds of entertainment. And it's like, where's the authenticity of the female experience enjoying this kind of entertainment? Like, are you doing it to impress the guys? Are you doing it to imitate how men enjoy these experiences? Are you catering to them? Right. It's female chauvinist. Pigs. That is Go a great recommendation. <laughs> and I think the other thing that this is missing is burlesque is about creating a safe space for everyone. It's a performance art that is about creating safety and comfort. And that is also not there in the audience interaction in this film. But it's yeah, I mean, I'm not saying mm-hmm. this is a bad film. I It's grown on me a little bit every time I watch it, every time I get really angry and I'm like, where's the burlesque in the film burlesque? I'm starting to see a through line where I'm like, they had a logic. They just lost it at a certain point. (laughs) They lost the plot. All right. Well, let's get into our first movie today because obviously we're chomping at the bit. (laughs) And it is, yeah, it's easy to draw a line between the Pussycat Dolls and the movie Burlesque. Robin Anton founded the Pussycat Dolls. Steve Anton, who wrote and directed the movie, is her brother. Steve used to direct dance sequences for the Viper Room-based PCD show, which in 2003 included a show by Christina Aguilera. Done and done. Give this man $55 million and access to a whole bunch of fishnets. But the story behind this much maligned movie is even more wild than you can imagine. And you know that any movie with Cher is going to have just one or two solid stories. And is anyone seemingly as obsessed with the 1991 revival of Cabaret <laughs> as this filmmaker seems to be? <laughs> and, and I'm enough of a Broadway weirdo that I knew he was making yeah. those references. So yeah. many times. Are you kidding me? The introduction oh. of Alan Cummings' character was through a, a reflective surface. Also, the entire uh, love scene 
of Christina Aguilera and and Jack, whoever played Jack. I don't, I don't think it matters, unfortunately. Finally. <laughs> Right, that she finally gets it on with. Of course, it's being told on a rainy afternoon with the rain hitting the window pane while she's doing her big ballad, which is practically Liza doing maybe yeah. this time. You know, it's the same. We're seeing actual recreations and, of course, the Fosse-styled dance sequences that were so short-lived. It was so short-lived, and I thought those were the only interesting stage performances. When Alan Cummings on stage with those two contortionists, you know, landing his nose between legs, like with landing the triangle, on crotch, that's love. where I was yeah, interested. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. he actually does that kind of performance. Right. That's what he does. All right. right. Before we go too far, <laughs> I know we're going. We're chomping. Here we go. Alicia, give us a very, very quick plot yeah, summary. Yeah, I would rather just talk about how one. Alan Cummings should have been in the whole film and not just the 35 <laughs> seconds that they, like, wheel him out because he's so wonderful. But uh, we are introduced to Allie, who is a small-town waitress in Iowa. She buys herself a one-way ticket to Los Angeles and uh, is going to make it big. She has nothing behind her, no family, no friends, which I find kind of hard to believe. When she lands in L.A., she finds this club that is uh, managed by Tess, played by the inimitable Cher. There seems to be some sort of mortgage problem. Gentrification is happening, so she's going to lose the club. Um, She goes up against this villain, played by Kristen Bell as a brunette, which I... I absolutely adore. Yeah. Um, and proves that she has the chops first to be, I'm going to say a dancer, not a burlesque performer, but a dancer. And then they realize that she has these like mutant lungs where she can just belt out a song. <laughs> and Tess realizes that this is the best bet to kind of save her club. Throw in some Stanley Tucci doing a fine job in a film that he should not be in. Uh He's doing yeah, his he's darndest, sweet. that man. God bless him. You know, he he knew he almost got an Oscar for Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, he thought yeah. maybe he could do it. And um, Peter Gallagher, it. I'm unclear why he's in this film. Um, I even think I saw... And why his oh eyebrows God. are blocked. That's his best feature. And they've got his hair in front of his eyebrows in every Bad shot. Bad bangs in 2010. That's, that's a, a real trend. Taste, that's a real trend a in 2010 <laughs> in film. Bad bangs. And I will say, Christina Aguilera... They gave her bangs in this film and they come and go. And it's not like she's wearing a wig. Like there'll be a shot of her where like in the previous shot, she has full blown like 1995 era bangs. And then the next scene, her hair is like iron straight. Bangs are nowhere. (sighs) I mean, that's just a content. Bangs and continuity are really important. And that's why you don't put bangs in a film. That's what the film's about. <laughs> Agreed. It was a distraction. Yeah. It is, in fact, about big bangs. I will give it that. Um, I think, as someone who has been to Los Angeles several times, as I know both of you have as well, one of my biggest points of contention here is the idea that you would ever walk into a nightclub not knowing what it <laughs> is and believe you're going to be okay. Like, let alone have a rev- revelatory, epiphanary moment. I, I think the uh, there's so many issues I have with this film. I think it's interesting to look at as a time capsule, but I think the biggest issue. I have is I cannot figure out who it's for. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure. So I asked a number of my friends who are within the LGBTQ community, does this have a following in that environment? And they said, very specifically, like it's not one of those like mommy dearest where it's like across the board, you have to be able to quote this verbatim. But I mean, like Pheromone and um, and uh, Chad Michaels Chad. went on tour with this. So oh, obviously man, there's an that audience so for that. <laughs> but yeah. I know me too. But then I'm like, but is there, was this meant to be a sleepover movie? Were they gunning for like Chicago style Oscars? <laughs> like what did they want? No, I think, I think, I think this was a project that, deep down to its core said if we could ever tailor make a film so worthy of a Razzie we're gonna do it (laughs) 
You know what I mean? Like every possible, I mean, the opening moment of, of Christina Aguilera entering the club saying, what is this? If that moment hadn't happened, Alan Cummings would not be able to deliver the line. Honey, I should wash your mouth out with Jägermeister. That is a great line. I also love that she walked into a club with a Starbucks iced coffee at like what, 1 a.m.? Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, the Jägermeister was totally a Diablo Cody line. Because you look at how many people rewrote this because it's Diablo Cody and it's Susanna Grant and it's John Patrick Shanley. Cher had Shanley do a pass on it, which is just like these are heavy freaking hitter Mm. screenwriters. But if people don't know Susanna Grant, uh, best known for Aaron Brockovich, like people who have also written for women and amazing roles for women. But mm. I think that's also why this is tonally so weird because there are also those are all very, very different writers. So you have moments where it feels like a melodrama and wo- moments where like you're like, oh, this is saucy and sexy. And then moments mm-hmm. where it becomes this like fluffy rom-com and you're like, pick a lane. <laughs> like just, just It shouldn't be. It shouldn't is. be hard. It shouldn't be hard to make a, a strong, proud female film, female centric film when you're using burlesque as the setting and yet it is and yet it is because it's muddied right and you're going i don't know who this is for i don't really know who's the main storyline to follow because there are a few of them going on all at once but what i'll say is that it is not a film for anyone that's looking for an introduction to burlesque and that should just be a fucking censor that should be right up front on this um it what it did was it it really activated the corporate frenzy of I need burlesque. Mm. So after this film, this is when I was noticing corporate bookings like crazy in the real world asking for burlesque at their events. And every time their understanding of it was full back bottoms. So no thongs, no G-strings, no strip teases that really revealed anything. You could peel a glove maybe, but they wanted it to feel like, of course, Moulin Rouge always comes up, but they wanted it to feel like burlesque, the film. And that to me is where this is just total misinformation. The editing decisions in this movie alone do such a disservice to trying to teach anyone about burlesque because burlesque as an art form, it requires your patience and it requires your full attention throughout the entire act because in many ways it's a slow burn. Even if it's a high tempo song, you're building that intensity and you're building that excitement, that arousal, whatever it is that's intended to be, you know, felt by the audience. It takes time to work up to that. And the edits in this move so quickly, you're seeing 20 seconds of a performance and that's it. You're seeing bang, bang, boom. It's it's almost like a Fast and the Furious approach. Oh, wow. To you're blowing my mind. Well, well, that's it's you're trying to evoke this feeling of cabaret, and yet you're not letting us sit and actually feel a seduction. Cabaret is a mood, and this film has no mood. Cabaret is a love story, and this film does not understand a love story at all. Like, we it does not understand human emotion or affection, (laughs) it's deeply complicated. Yeah, Laura, I just I miss you so much. Because, I mean, <laughs> Ladies of Burlesque was so close to my heart as a film series. And I want listeners to know that Laura was the MVP in terms of Ladies of Burlesque. And you were the first person I went to. Uh, it didn't work out for the first screening, but we, we got you later. And you did Party Girl. And you did you did Cabaret yes. and got on stage and sang um, maybe this time. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> you are such an MVP of Burlesque. And it's just making Thank me, you. like, looking at your Thank face you. and knowing that it's because of the pandemic that Ladies of Burlesque is no longer. I'm just so sad right now. (laughs) 
because I wish. <laughs> hey, we are we are having we're having this yes. conversation, and that is satisfying yes. a lot of the itches that need scratches in I'm me so right glad. now. You know, I'm like so this glad. is this is satisfying. Yeah. Well, me it's too. interesting you bring up the idea of this freneticness because I think about the burlesque performance that affected me the most that I've ever seen was actually done by a male burlesque performer, mm. and he did um, Miss Otis regrets like the Ella Fitzgerald version mm. yeah. in like this swath of blue cloth that like he gently moved around. I was fucking sobbing by the end of it. And I've not been moved by live performance in general like that. But to to think of that as burlesque. And if, you know, had they gotten a corporate booking on that, I'm sure they would have been fascinated. But that's just such an interesting idea of, like, why do you think people misunderstand what burlesque is? Like, and it's almost a willful misunderstanding because they don't they don't care to investigate it more than an aesthetic. A lot of people can get their kicks and realize, hey, I'm aroused by the look of this and not want to understand it further, not want to know the history of it further. You know, if you don't know your history, you don't know where you're coming from. And so people get so excited by the surface, the surface attractions here when really like. When you look into the history of it, you have Gypsy Rose Lee, Mm -hmm. who would stand on stage and would take 45 minutes undoing the buttons on a glove. But there's also a bit of dialogue she's giving. But there's also a command that she is holding, this attention of the audience. And that was hypnotizing in that era. And so people don't realize that there is a hypnosis that you fall under as an audience member. And some people just get stuck on the aesthetic. And they go, okay, great. We can motivate women to dress like this if we tell them it's burlesque. We can motivate them. Like they don't care about the artistry. When I think about these, probably my favorite burlesque performance on film, it is uh, Gilda, 1946. And it's Mm. Rita Hayworth. And I don't think people think of that as a burlesque film. It was absolutely the first film I showed for Lady of Burlesque. And all she does is remove a string of pearls and one glove. And it is the sexiest striptease. I have ever seen. Oh, yeah. And that's all it took. I mean, yeah. first of all, it's Rita Hayworth. So like it doesn't, yeah, exactly. it's not hard to sell. But um, yeah. that really is to me, the the epitome of burlesque is, you know, the song she's singing about Auntie Rue is, you know, a figure in burlesque and just, just one glove thrown into the audience and a flip of her hair yeah. and the most erotic, iconic, canic- canonical, like striptease on film occurs. In 46, in black and white. I mean, a lot of a lot of the corporate burlesque experience, meaning virtually no striptease, large ensemble cast of women mostly mm-hmm. that fit a certain body type wearing, you know, a- appropriate lingerie, meaning full coverage, they're not tassel twirling. All of this paved the way for another movement in dance and live performance called Heels. Mm-hmm. And Heels became, you know, a, a, an offspring of this corporate sanitized version of burlesque. And Heels is what I think burlesque, the movie, That's, kind of is totally about. Right. You know, totally you're right. seeing these giant ensemble cast members of long-haired women flipping their hair around, you know, hitting a couple really strong silhouettes. And is that burlesque? There's a couple of moments that definitely hit the architecture of like burlesque. But you're not kind of doing burlesque. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And I thank you so much for pointing out that burlesque um, as its incarnation today, and it has historically always been inclusive with different kinds of bodies, different shapes of bodies. Um, And that is maybe the biggest criticism of this film is we exclusively have impossibly thin women performing these shows, which isn't true of Los Angeles burlesque either. There's a huge burlesque movement in Los Angeles that is far more inclusive Um, And this really is like, unless you're a size zero, you were not cast in this film. 
Right. So I want to bring us into a little bit about the how did this get made business? And I think this is part of the issue is that the um, Clint Culpepper, who was one of the executives at Screen Gems, um, he decided that he loved the aesthetic of it. He is also Steve Anton's uh, partner. Mm-hmm. So they have been they were together for years beforehand. They also happen to be good buddies with David Geffen, who Steve Anton also used to date. Um, so <laughs> when this. Clint Culpepper, I know it's so incest and so incestuous. It's so incestuous. So when Clint Culpepper uh, decided that he uh, loved burlesque and that they wa- he wanted to make a movie of it, he managed to get $55 million from Screen Gems. Now, at the time, Screen Gems was predominantly known for the Resident Evil movies and like remakes of horror films and things like that. This was intended to be a gopher awards. We're going to give Christina Aguilera her big break. We'll get to her in a minute as well as Cher. But they were like, who's the diva we can get in? And David Geffen was the one who was like, I can get you Cher. You guys want Cher? I'll get you Cher. And so this became like this wooing process. So the whole movie actually is coming more at the tail end of the burlesque movement. Like the Pussycat Dolls had already disbanded by 2009. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This movie took like four years to develop as they tried to get all the pieces in place. And then the question became, can Steve Anton actually handle a production this size? And the answer is kind of. Um, (laughs) It's just what his focus was on. On. He was a teen actor. If you've seen the music video Jesse's Girl, he is Jesse in Jesse's Girl. That is Steve Hampton. <laughs> In your weird music video <laughs> trivia. But uh, but yeah, so his huh. focus was predominantly on the music video aspects of it. And my belief is that they actually thought, and they were probably right, they were going to make way more money on the soundtrack mm-hmm. than they yeah. were on mm-hmm. the actual film. And when you look at what they cut, like they cut a bunch out of this movie. This movie runs long to begin with. But you look at what they cut and what they were going to cut. They wanted to cut Cher's musical number at the end. <laughs> How dare they? They should have. No, come on. (laughs) Listen, it didn't have a place in the movie. May I just say, I, of course, of course I love, I love Cher. And anytime that Cher is going to appear on my screen, I'm excited. However, in the, the, the plot of this movie, we didn't know that Tess had any intention of working on a new act. We didn't know that it's Tess true. was, you know, waiting to unleash. Also, why would we have such a sad ballad included in your <laughs> Keep Your Dick Hard stage show? You know what I mean? Like, it just... <laughs> I, I was like, why are we doing this? Cher must have done the film knowing that the only way it's happening is if she gets this ballad. Lovely song, lovely ballad. It did charted. nothing for matters. the story. <laughs> exactly. Did nothing. Did nothing. But I think that's for the older people in the audience who went to see Cher. Because you have, right. this is drawing in two True. separate audiences, True. right? It's br- bringing in the younger generation for Christina Aguilera, and then it's bringing in the Cher fans. And they had to have a Cher song in there. And that is speaking to the people who are like, I'm not done yet. Cher's not done, and right. neither am I. Right? And again, digging into that idea of female empowerment and whatever that happens to mean. And I think that's the other thing of like, what a great call of bringing in Cher. Like, I'm trying to think of who else could have... Who, who, have, who could have done this and playing on the tagline of um, it takes a legend to make a star. Like how brilliant is that? Here's this genius. This all should yeah. have worked. Yeah. The, the recipe ingredients are there. It's just, you know, a total mismatch. Like it's like all the proportions are wrong. I want to think that burlesque has a place in film that this could be remade and actually be authentically burlesque and have some of the, some of the same elements and, and work. And I just worry that this film made producers shy away 
from Burlesque as a storyline. I think that's a, there's a possibility for that. I'm sure we're on the verge of a cabaret remake. I'm sure it's coming. I wouldn't be surprised. That scares if that's me. On that somebody's scares me. List. I know that is a sacred. And, well, then no. it's not. It won't be done the right no. way. I mean, it, it won't be done the you right. You can't remake way. Fosse. I mean, it's impossible. Gonna, you can't remake Sweet Sherry. You'll Charity. see Lady Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga will be Liza. Yeah. Can I call that right yeah. now? Yeah. I'm done. actually just going to yeah. call it. You're 100 yeah. correct. Well, it's also interesting to me that Cher took this because she'd never been given the opportunity to sing in a movie before and i'm like what you are wow. correct but how did that happen yeah. how did you get to 2010 and not sing a song in a movie i, I think there was share? a movement for her in the 80s where she, to be taken seriously and keep in mind she's an academy yeah. award-winning actress she yes. really had to just just like just divorce her pop star kind of status and do these serious roles like silkwood and i mean I'm sorry, Moonstruck's my favorite film. I've I looked at my letterbox and realized I watched it 22 times last year, and I'm <laughs> surprised it's not yeah. higher. Um, she, I think she really divorced herself from that, and so it's interesting to have this comeback. And she hadn't been in a film in eight or nine years at this point in 2010, uh, and to kind of return a return to form. Really, it just didn't work. I don't think it it. I don't think it leaves a stain on her. No. though. you no. know what I mean. You know how some She's film Teflon. decisions. Uh, <laughs> it, it, She's Teflon. She really is. It's so it's so true. Like this did not make me love or hate her in any way whatsoever. I mean, she's just untouchable. I'm like, there's Cher and she's, you know, she's she's on my screen right now. Phenomenal. She can't do wrong. She looks fantastic. Kind of and she dictated her yes. own wardrobe because of course she dictated her own wardrobe. Of course she did. And yeah, she looks the best out of this, out of, I think, uh, just about everybody. Like the costume design is yeah. not bad in this given what they're doing. The other thing I thought was really interesting is like when you start to read reviews, a lot of people actually talk about this being too provocative and um come the, on there was a performance there was a performance by christina aguilera on the x factor in the uk to promote this film and like people were writing letters and i watched this thing and i'm like this is like i've seen high school stage productions do something <laughs> similar to what they are yeah. doing so i don't yeah. understand this like backlash to like the idea of a woman in a fishnet and corsets and a tutu and yet we have ballet being something that's overly provocative and won't somebody think of the children that's interesting to me that's that's so i, I did a high school production of dracula <laughs> at lakeshore collegiate institute oh back in like oh four and maybe oh three oh four and the whole thing was styled like a meatloaf music video yes. and so there was candles everywhere but there was also this like big push for fishnets and corsets on everyone and so we we did it we brought a motorcycle on stage like we we did it is there a video so of I, this you can't tell me this shit's provocative there is there's a dvd of it now i've actually had it transferred to DVD. Thank God. I'm thinking about a release. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood Suite would like to talk to you about acquisition rights and getting that on the channel immediately. That's now recorded. That's now recorded. She can hold you to it. It'll count as a yes. Canadian film, which we're very invested in. <laughs> true. 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 I love it. I love uh, it. I mean, just um, speaking of the prestige thing as well. So the Golden Globes, which we all know now, total sham, mm -hmm. but like they obviously are people that can be purchased. But Screen Gems was gunning for this stuff so hard that they provided uh, every Everyone at the, all the Golden Globes voters with a private share concert if they would vote for this film to be nominated for Golden Globes. Like that. Come the, on. It was also The Tourist was the other one they had produced at that time, <laughs> right. which also got a bunch of nominations, which is notoriously, you know, absolute garbage. But it's just so interesting that they were like, we have a treasure here. And if we push it hard enough people will accept it, which I think there is this idea in general about Hollywood and everything that like it, people put so much money behind something that's crap and it will take off even though it's not good. That doesn't always happen. Like mm. it's you, no matter how much money you put it's behind reassuring. something, sometimes this film it does is reassuring. It it's good evidence that you cannot buy everything. 
Um, I, I appreciate totally. that film. This film for that reason is that it really proves like, I don't care how much money you have. You have to have some taste level and some smart decisions yeah. to, to get something off the ground. Do you not think that it'll live forever in infamy though? Like I, I yeah. feel like this film is going to, maybe it's just not, now's not the time, but I feel like there's going to be a huge cult resurgence. I agree for it with at you. Some point. I'm serious. I agree with you. I am so serious because yes, it, 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 it really was this dividing and the ones that did love it they're a small population but look they're taking it on tour yeah. pheromone chad michaels like there's gonna be a revival of it, this it has to be a generation of, of kids that have no idea who christina aguilera is or know her as her <laughs> current incarnation which is um you know wonderful they need to move really far away and then this will become a curiosity i think our generation and the generation of audiences who saw this when it came out were too close too closely invested mm -hmm. into pop stars and these icons. And once it, they become new again and like rediscovered, then I could see this film becoming an absolute cult classic. I'd say in like uh, 10 or 15 years, it needs 10 or 15 years to bake a little bit longer. And then we're going to see like our grandkids <laughs> with burlesque posters in their bedroom. Are the Christina Aguilera performances in this strong enough for that? Yes. Because I think she is one of the best performers on the planet. I think her voice is insane. I think she dances extremely well for what she does. They're they're hokey and they're 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 not great. But I mean, I I was I, my eyes weren't off her. Like that green dress number doesn't make any sense in that film whatsoever. It does. It, exactly. Stunning. It does not make She's any. Stunning. It's it's almost gratuitous how many runs she yeah. does. Like it, it, it is, it's to the point where like, I was always impressed by Christina's voice. I've always been like, yeah. wow. Like when you watch her live at an awards show or you see some concert, like she can actually do that. Mm -hmm. That's really a vocal ability she has. Uh, it was so, it, it, it was weighed on so heavy. It was laid on us so thick. The icing was so thick <laughs> on this fucking cake of her doing these vocal runs that at times I was almost like, come on, I'm not even joking. I had to turn the volume down. You're going to have like go into diabetic shock. From all that frosting. Right. It was like the same effect that a strobe has on someone who, you know, would experience a seizure. Her voice was starting to do that to wow. me audibly. Wow. I was like, okay, it was just too many runs for me. That's just my I, personal Yeah, opinion. that's wonderful. Was that Lady Marmalade Redux? Like, was that what they were trying to do? Because I just think of that where that was, what, four of the biggest divas at the time yeah. singing as hard as they possibly fucking could. And then yes. every woman tried to do it at karaoke to get laid, <laughs> yes. like for the next yes. decade. Exactly. I still do it at karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> whose part do you I don't do know. it's usually all of them because i'm just doing it by myself <laughs> i always drop that little kim oh, verse yeah. i hit that little kim That's verse because you can kind of bust through a crowd with yeah, it yeah. Know, like, move people out <laughs> of the way to do it about attention I, gathering yeah yeah, yeah that's what i mean point, that's what Laura. i mean i like it <laughs> I, I will say that it's kind of it's it's oddly sweet and so predictable that we have to remind ourselves how good a person Christina Aguilera's character is because she's venturing into this seedy and complicated world of is this striptease is this sex work is this mm -hmm. too sexy can we not love her I mean her introduction in this film is not taking all the money in the cash register because she's owed her paycheck but taking only her amount <laughs> and then lodging with the bartender but not pursuing him even though he's drop dead gorgeous and sexy and like lives in this like bohemian fucking hollywood love nest and finds out he has a fiance so what does she do i'll just occupy the couch it's okay we keep going back to this like I don't know if it's Hooker with a heart of gold, but we need to be reminded that she's a good person that makes good decisions. And I was like, 
Really? Thank God she had that affair with the 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 businessman. I needed that affair. Well, I and we need, we also needed to of... understand what air rights are because they're a very big part of this <laughs> yeah, plot. I and I was like, this who put this in the screenplay? That is ridiculous. Like, right. I like Diablo Cody the best, so I'm giving it to Diablo Cody. I'm hoping yeah. it's her. That's the one thing that like people ask about it all the time, and Steve Anton has no answer for it. He's just, it's just a thing I know about. Yeah. Um, but that also comes back to that idea of the innocence. Also comes back to who is this movie for? Because at no point does it ever feel like she's actually in danger, and yet they have right. this like actually pretty intense plot line with Kristen Bell, and God, I love a bitchy Bell, um, <laughs> talking about her substance abuse you know so it's like yeah. is that who like that is actually kind of dark shit they're dealing with but then you also have like yeah that no one is ever actually in danger here like there's no. never a bad heckler there's never stalkers no. there's never one of the women quote-unquote gets in trouble but like you know she the man marries her it's it's very interesting the the level of morality that is in here that they're leveling at the audience well said all right with that let's get into something else that has its own level of morality we're going to be looking at a Electrolux, and one more very weird Joseph Gordon-Levitt performance. He has a lot of those. That's coming up after the break. I'm not going to pretend I know much about the career longevity of adult film performers, but I'm going to make an assumption, and stop me if I am wrong, it's similar to that of a professional athlete in that you have a number of years in your youth to make a ton of money and a name for yourself and hope that when you retire at the ripe old age of your mid-30s or early 40s, you've built up enough of a fan base to sustain you, or you have enough of a nest egg socked away to pivot into another aspect of the industry or another industry altogether. There's a lot of thoughts about the after career of the fictional Electra Lux in a movie anchored by a solid performance by Carla Gudino. It's a sequel to the film Women in Trouble, and a third installment was planned, but did not materialize. We'll do our best to catch you up, but quite frankly, you can watch this on its own. Uh, Laura, can you walk us through who Electra Lux is? Because everyone in this world seems to know it. However, she seems to have no career prospects. Absolutely. Electra Lux. Uh, we're dealing with a former porn legend transitioning into a new phase of life. And of course, everyone's, uh, uh, I guess, divorce from the business goes differently. But in this case, she's cleaned up uh, or sanitized her image to a degree where she is now teaching how to have sex like a porn star, how to how to fuck like a porn star. But not star. even to like as a large seminar. Like we yeah. would think that like, who, who clearly in this world, she has this enormous prestige and yet she's doing these like tiny community classes this would be a ted talk this should be a ted talk if she's that kind exactly. of star but she's actually renting a community center and like having to bargain with the pastor who's going to come in after and like give his like marriage and also and this is time stamped so beautifully because what we're dealing with here is uh, a moment in the adult content industry where milf content hadn't yet hit its fame and its stride that it's in right now. Mm -hmm. Because Electra Lux, there's no reason why if she existed today that she couldn't still be at the top of the game making MILF content, which is the most sought after content on the tube site. I didn't these know days. that. And that's really? giving so, me a lot of hope. <laughs> so thank you. Yes. Yes, no, no, and it's 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 absolutely wild. The MILF category in particular is one that actually begins around 25. Whoa. So around well, 25. <laughs> that's right. There's there's Whoa. actually no room for just women anymore in porn. It's like there's teens, 
teens, the whole teen and step experience, and then there's MILF. Whoa. So we go right to MILF after that. And so Electra Lux in this film is, you know, a woman whose career has come to the end, and she's looking to transition into the next phase, which we learn to be something of educating or, or teaching. That seems to be a very popular choice for, yes, a lot of adult entertainers that want to leave the business but don't really know what the next step is. A lot of them actually do go into some form of sex education. <laughs> Um, and so, of course, Electrolux is on this path. Um, but I, I found it to be such a story about how when you've been a sex worker, you are absolutely predisposed to holding space for everyone else but yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just so much a, a strange little moral in this film going on is that Electrolux ends up uh, interacting with a number of these strange people that come to her with their problems and she's holding space for them. I mean, the elevator scene where she's having a, a long discussion with her neighbor who's having a, a spat with his girlfriend. There's so many moments where Electrolux is almost the mediator for, for people's problems. Yeah. And of course, she has problems of her own. Electrolux, uh, her, her partner passed away, what, on an airplane or something, air, air, a laboratory. Yeah, a laboratory uh, is Josh Brolin, I believe, from the photograph. <laughs> I Josh had to really Brolin. like squint That's to right. see that it was him. And he was also unfaithful to her as well. So she's right. dealing with a number of other issues here where it's like, yeah, if for anyone else, she should be freaking taking time to heal. Like she's also about to well, give birth, right? She also seems impenetrable to the pain of losing someone. Yeah. I mean, we don't see any kind of wrestling with, with grief or sadness that she doesn't have this partner in her life well, anymore. Well, Laura, that would be I, a downer, you see. And this right, movie is an right, upper. <laughs> right. This is an upper. And yes, above all things, she is pregnant. So let's throw that into the mix as well. Something that I don't feel we spend enough time with at all yeah. when, when learning about her character and understanding who Electra Lux is. Because if anything, if you told me the summary of this film, I would say, great, we actually have some time alone with a former porn legend. Let's get to know them. And we don't really get to know her at all. Well, yeah. that and to understand what being pregnant does to your body for someone who has been reliant on their body and the way the world looks at it for income. So that's right. extremely interesting. And now you're, you literally have something in Inside you that is dependent on your body. Like, there's so many different ways right. you could go with this that just I thought out. I think this film right. thinks it's an art house film, but the director doesn't understand what art house that you're allowed to do really complex and nuanced things with a screenplay. And really, all we see is she goes from being the whore to the mother. There's nothing in between. It's black right. and white. Right. The second she's pregnant and decides that you know she wants to have the child, she's now the mother. It just doesn't make sense. This is so, it's just so reified. And so it's just reductive. Yeah. It's very reductive. Yeah. And there's great actors yeah. in this. And I'm, I'm balled yes. over by the ensemble cast. And I love Carla Gugino. This is also directed by her long-term partner. I mean, they have been dating since 1996. So he's writing this for her. I would, I don't like the, the concept of the muse. I think the muse is someone who collaborates and we just think of them as like on a pedestal, but she is effectively his muse and it's just it's i'm so sad that it's a failure because it could have been great Hmm. So uh, Sebastian Gutierrez is someone who seems like he actually wants to be an art house filmmaker like in almost like a um 
Yodorowsky sort of way. <laughs> yeah, exactly, 100%. But like like having like fun visuals and dealing with like sexuality and esotericness, uh, esotericness and like all sorts of weird stuff. And he does the money pictures often. And uh, But then he'll release something really unusually. Like he has one of the first films that was released on YouTube mm-hmm. entirely, which was Girl Walks Into a Bar. Yeah. So he's not objecting to, the, to being able to like kind of experiment with stuff. I just don't think you're right. He has the kind of aesthetic or the ability to play with this. Yeah. This is is also coming late for me in that Kevin Smithian sense of yeah. humor. Did you just say Kevin Smithian? Yeah, yes. it's a very specific <laughs> sense of humor where like it's Judd Apatow is the next level for it where yeah. it's like riffing on dirty subjects that requires a fuck ton of editing that, that doesn't happen. But that a lot of people attach themselves to being like it's real and it's raw. The same thing is happening here. If you told me this was a mm-hmm. Kevin Smith movie, I would not be surprised. It's very mm-hmm. much in that vein. I, yeah. but it feels too late for that. And you mean that as an insult, right? <laughs> Full disclosure, I think uh, Chasing Amy is his best written movie. I think Mallrats is his best acted movie. I think mm. they're both very diff- difficult and okay. different films. Just clarifying. So there are things to things to identify with in them. Yes. There, there was something I found so beautifully comedic that is only funny in today's day and age as the internet and pornography have both grown immensely since this film mm-hmm. was launched, was, was made, released, introduced to the world. Um, and that being Joseph Gordon Levitt's character, first of all, the accent was atrocious and offensive. It's offensive, yeah. This is a Venezuelan filmmaker who went there, and I'm like, why? Right. I am Bert Rodriguez from Empilotas Magazine, the adult Latin world's numero uno source for breaking sexy news. But what I was immediately reminded of was I go, oh my God, this is so king of comedy. We're seeing mm. this super fan in his basement almost imitating what it would be like to host this big show, this big experience being this, this, I don't know, I guess, authority on the genre. And he keeps being interrupted by his mother who's calling down to him. So I'm immediately going, yeah, Rupert Pupkin, fucking great reference. Comedy. Laura. You are, you're and, blowing my mind and, again. <laughs> and we remember in King of Comedy that De Niro is this terrifying super fan troll like creature. And I think about the guys that sit in their basements and comment on the lives, the careers, every move a porn star makes. And these guys are equally very troll like. I'll be honest, the commentary can be uh, unbelievable. You see it on, you know, certain forums yeah. and, and, and Reddit threads, even the comments underneath videos on Pornhub. These are the kind of guys that are generating these comments. And I'm like, of course he's in a basement with his mother calling down to him. <laughs> of course he has a problem with his sister stepping into this business, but he has no problem uh, making his entire life's work about this business and, and commenting and weighing it. he is interested in into getting yes. into the industry as yes. well. Which is and judging her. But at the end, they try to flip it into, no, he's a good guy. Look how respectful he is. Oh, and my I'm God. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. This has not been the man you've been showing me through this. Nor is this who Joseph Gordon-Levitt appears At to be all. playing. It's definitely a mm-hmm. case where the director has no idea what the porn industry is, how it operates. Um, definitely if our listeners are interested, there's a film. It hasn't come out in Toronto yet, but it was nominated for the Independent Spirit Awards called Pleasure. It's a Swedish film about a Swedish uh, adult entertainer. I think she's 19, coming to Los Angeles to get into the porn industry. And it's it it's incredible. It's an incredible film. It's going to uh, shock and upset a 
lot of people, um, but an, a great performance, great director, female director who is intimately related to the porn industry in Sweden. Um, watch that instead of this. So it's not Rashida Jones. No. <laughs> it's not Rashida Jones. It's not Hot Girls Wanted. No. It's not a biased telling of an industry that's going to uh, uh, corrupt anyone who enters it. Thank yeah. you. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, you got to see this, Laura. I'm excited for you to see Pleasure. It's, uh, I, I don't to. even know if it will be allowed to be released here. Unclear. <laughs> Unclear. Wow. Wow. I am cautiously optimistic that somehow some yeah. backdoor channels will make it available for some sort backdoor of channels would be accurate. Yes, that would be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the man who wrote Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> that was his calling card. Do you know how much money he made off that? He can do as many of these yeah. as he wants because of Snakes on a Plane. I mean, just if if the man had a nickel for every meme, he would be <laughs> ruling the world at this point, richer yeah. than richer than Elon Musk. It, it does feel like someone who's making a bunch of assumptions about this, and he's talked in interviews about how Electrolux is based on Jenna Jameson. We don't necessarily know a lot about the lives of performers after they leave the business. We're starting to more with the opportunities on social media. Yeah. Social media gives us the chance to continue telling our stories the way that we want to, even after we leave a job or we leave a scene or we leave a friend group. And so I, I'm very, I'm very, you know, in touch with a lot of these individuals who are in the business looking to make leaps and bounds beyond it. I, I'm neighbors with one of the top names of the early 2000s, Lisa Ann. Ooh. Lisa Ann is my neighbor in uh, New York City, and she made a wonderful leap from you know, dominating. And I mean, this most bad, badass, hardcore porn bitch in the world made the leap over into sports casting. Really? Which is kind of beautiful, right? So from sports casting and is now has kind of, I guess, veered away from that and is actually doing books. She's been writing about her life story and has, I think, three books out now. She's just releasing her new one. And uh, and so, yeah, people people do, when you live a life in a business like porn, you, you kind of leave with a lot of philosophies and perspectives on life that make for outstanding storytelling. Right. Is there an after porn documentary? I feel like there has been, but then how biased is that? Is my, is my curiosity. There's, there's a series actually after porn ends and I believe there's after porn ends two and after porn ends three. And it's interesting because you, you definitely do get the updates from individuals who have left the business, but a lot of the individuals interviewed in the business have since gone back into the business. So it's it's kind of, yeah, it is, it's an interesting uh, series, but check that out for anyone. I don't find it to be too biased, not too negative about people leaving on bad terms necessarily. Um, and I would like to, of course, try and elevate the voices that do leave on good terms to try and shift the perspective of the business as mm -hmm. a whole. Mm-hmm. Earlier this season, we talked about 70s golden age porn, where there's a whole bunch of issues with that. Um, however, you look at someone like Georgina Spelvin, who we talked about significantly because we talked about uh, Devil and Miss Jones, and she has nothing but good things to say about the industry, about her experiences, about her control of her own work and her own body at that time. Um, and I think looking at those can be also be very encouraging and also see if you if that is an industry you are interested in entering, how do you control your own autonomy and how do you make it work for you in the best possible way? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, this is, this is, I think, the educational element that should be focused on when it comes to individuals leaving the business. We are seeing more community than ever before in the porn world. There's absolutely a one, bunch of wonderful organizations, including the Free Speech Coalition, including a group called Pineapple Support, a number of sex work and specifically adult content creation foundations and, and groups that are looking to be more of that, um, I guess, 
that that guide for individuals looking to enter, but it's also so easy to enter the business nowadays. And you can do it without really asking anyone for permission. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can create your own content and put it up anywhere. There's a number of available platforms to do it. So it's a very transformative time for porn because of that. The internet itself was a huge change for for porn as a business. I mean, we saw the end of contract girls, meaning that big companies like Wicked Pictures, mm-hmm. all these big, big names, uh, they, they weren't booking individual talent to be their contract girl and giving them these huge paychecks. They weren't producing promotional uh, images and tours and, and press junkets for upcoming films. So like it's, it's become more accessible to individuals, but it's also changed how so much of the business of it runs. The performers nowadays have a lot more freedom to kind of run their career as they will, which also means a lot more of the business to handle ultimately saying, hey, let's have a little bit more of the opportunity to educate and be there as the help, the the guidance, the fairy godmothers or godparents, as you will, to let others in uh, with the need to know. It's interesting to see how this parallels the Hollywood film industry within like the golden age of Hollywood and the studio system collapsing and then it moving into, parallel. you know, that's, the 70s and independent point. film. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's just it's uh, a okay. microcosm. That's all. Like it really is the same in terms of power and control and, and, and capitalism and all of that authorship, um, all of it. The auteur system. <laughs> Obviously, there's a fascination with this because there's another film that was released this same year called Meet Monica Valour, which is Kim Cattrall uh, playing a former porn uh, porn that, star. That God, checks I love out. Her so much. That checks out. Uh, I got to meet her before. She is the nicest woman and will not talk about Police Academy. Do not ask her about it. <laughs> she will stop entire so like th- yeah, Lesson she will learned. stop entire okay. conversations if you bring it up. But amazing woman, super cool. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's it, it it was basically a same take on this except for it is taking the kind of the tack that we would have wanted it to take where she meets a younger fan and it's the younger fan kind of coming to terms with like oh this is a human being um and it did fairly well on the independent circuit again i think it's probably because like more men were more interested in this because this has some of the most beautiful actresses of the 2010s julianne moore plays the virgin mary (laughs) exactly my my personal favorite kathleen quinlan i'm like what are you doing in this movie (laughs) she's great no kidding. Yeah, it's interesting because I think much like Burlesque, which is a film that doesn't actually understand the definition of burlesque, I do think this film doesn't understand the porn industry. And I wish, I know it didn't exist at the time, but the director perhaps watching a show like The Deuce could maybe have understood a little bit more about um, a feminist history of sex workers and of adult entertainment. And I love I love that we're in an era where a show like The Deuce, although it was pretty much canceled by HBO and no one watched it, exists because we're interested in seeing those exact revolutions you're talking about, Laura, with video cameras in the 1980s changing everything for porn, then internet and all of that amateur porn coming in. Um, yeah, I just wish he has more, wish he was more educated in what he was talking about. And now in terms of the actual film itself, though, because I found the vignette structure, especially because at the time I hadn't, I didn't even know there was a first movie and then I went back and watched it afterwards. But I found the vignette structure very disorienting of who am I supposed to be paying attention to? How do these people connect? Or is it just 
kind of like a sliding door, not sliding doors, a four room sort of thing where it's like, oh, these are all people that are in the industry, which the first movie is. But Electrolux became such a big uh, hit out of that, quote unquote, that movie made $18,000. I do not know how a second one was made. A third one was not made (laughs) as a direct result, even though in all the interviews, all the women are talking about how excited they are to make the third one. Um, It it just I, I find I personally found it very hard to follow. And it took me a while to figure out who was who and if I even needed to know if they were related or not. And then it gets surreal with the Virgin Mary showing up. Um, Thank you, first and foremost, for saying that you were confused because I was watching this last night and there were so many instances where I was like, do these stories come together? What is the decision in making them as uh, sectioned off as they are? I mean, there's the other two young Porn stars? They're, I believe that they're Maybe. porn stars. Uh, I think they're sex workers. So they're not actually, I think they're escorts is what they are. I don't think they're actually well, one of them. One of them said that she was recognized for a film That's that true. she had been you in. Right. So that I thought, okay, are they young porn yes. stars? But yes, the one of the two friends in this, you know, it flowers into a lesbian romance, which is so much fun. Um, one of them, I think, is more along the lines of escorting because she is looking to, you know, see what these two men that they find on this resort might be, you know, willing to spend kind of thing. So so I got that, but I was very disoriented at times jumping mm-hmm. between these stories. And I'm so happy you addressed saying that this is normal to feel this way because at times I'm going, hang on. Is this an art film or not? Am I am I not at a level of sophistication to actually there is understand nothing wrong this? with you? No, no, no. I, I, Robert no. Altman, this director, is not. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is very. Who also, I believe, used Julianne Moore very effectively. Robert Altman himself. knew how to use Julianne Moore. That is true. That is correct. That is true. Here I was like, so why does the Virgin Mary show up? I mean, obviously, this is like South America's got a whole bunch of stuff going on with Catholicism that I don't even want to touch on. But I think it's like, is that is that part of it? I don't know, because I don't have that same attachment. I didn't grow up Catholic. I don't understand why she's there. I, I thought it was a very strange decision to to take it to that level of fantasy or fever dream almost. I mean, at, the idea to access this religious figure we hadn't felt religion in the film anywhere else. It was very jarring. Immediately, I knew who it was, the way that Julianne Moore is dressed. Mm-hmm. And within you know, the first sentence of her appearance, you go, okay, wow, we're having a religious experience. It felt very jarring. I don't want to think that they're trying to convey that sex workers do have a, a, a moral dilemma going on. I don't want to say that, but is that what was trying to be said? Who knows? I think that's the issue and also the harm of this film is that I don't know what it's trying to do. Like if you were making um, Zach and Mary make a porno, I know what that movie is doing, Mm -hmm. right? I get Mm -hmm. it. This one here, I'm like, I don't, are you trying to say something profound about the sex work industry? Is this just a character study? Because otherwise, please go watch John Dealman. I don't understand the point of view here. I do get you got a camera in two weeks and had a bunch of fun with your friends. And I think that's what this is. And yet there's still, uh, there is still a large contingency of people that really like this movie. They think it's really funny and it's really Did you know that when they premiered it at South by Southwest, the projector broke and they never were able to complete the screening. And the director, (laughs) the director got up on stage and did a tap dance and then everyone went home. (laughs) No, no, it's true. It's true. It happened. Oh my gosh. And then it wasn't released until like a year potentially two years later that it yeah it's one of the most notorious like south by southwest screenings of of all time 
Wow. <laughs> Bad this karma. This is the exact kind of movie, though, for South by Southwest. Yes. Like, yes. this is exactly the fit for that, yes, that it is. festival, though. And and maybe I've, I've got my back against the wall when it comes to outsiders outside of sex work and the adult industry uh, looking to form a, an opinion or an experience. Maybe I've got my back against the wall here in saying this, but, you know, the idea that there's a plot line of a private investigator looking to retrieve and then hide forever the lyrics that a rock star wrote about his sex worker, wife, partner, whomever. The fact that uh, this, this protagonist of ours has this sort of dance song number about wanting to be loved and wanting to find a certain kind of love. I, to me, I'm going, hold up a minute. Wait a second. Are you trying to say something about these people, about those who are in this business and how they deserve to be treated, how they ha- hold their views on love and worthiness? Like there was, I had a couple dilemma moments yeah, there. Fair enough. Because then there's always the argument of like, no, 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 I'm just talking about this specific person, not the industry in general. And I mean, with a movie like this, because it is so flippant and irreverent um it is you can see both sides of the argument is this is just the story of electrolux versus i am speaking for the industry as a whole it's uh you know good way to position yourself in the middle there bro what i'm realizing (laughs) is i want screenplays written by laura desiree like i don't Ah, i don't i don't think we've ever talked about whether you write screenplays but your (laughs) positioning on as an authority on both of these topics is is profound and like I don't know if you can if you have time for night classes to take a screenwriting. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I I've got a couple. I've got a couple sitting in Good. um in edits right now. I've, I've I I wrote. I went to film school in New York twenty two thousand six or two thousand seven. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and so I definitely had ambition to go into this, and I wanted to tell feminist film noir. So it's yeah. kind oh of my I feel God. that we're here now talking yeah. about this right now. I. I had a feature. I had a feature, a, a very erotic film called His Woman's Man, and I never did <laughs> I anything with that. it. But just know that okay. title has been spoken. Okay, to <laughs> noted. <laughs> done. Done. All right. On that note, I am going to end the podcast because <laughs> we cannot get any better. And now we are all going to be sitting on tenterhooks, waiting for the Laura Desiree premiere of her first film. And, and you will join the, the release, Diablo the Blu-ray Cody. release of the high school production of Dracula, <laughs> starring. <laughs> Where by. I play a lesbian tattooed Dr. Seward. Uh, yes. You were Dr. Seward? That's even better. That's even better. Played by Richard E. Grant in Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992. You did that role? Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God yeah. bless you all. All right. Ending this here, it doesn't get better. Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is probably the most fun I've ever had on the podcast. I'm sorry, Cam, our usual co-host, but Laura just scooped you. <laughs> too bad yeah. too bad that's all right uh we just recorded an episode with someone else who we laughed a lot during alicia so you can be jealous when mm, you listen to that okay. one <laughs> mm. laura desiree thank you so much for joining us for the first time an absolute pleasure to have you on hopefully it won't be the last no i'm, I'm coming back for more Yay. what an absolute thrill thank you both so much for having me this was just heaps of fun i loved it Please tell people how they can hear more of your work that is already out in the universe. Absolutely. So you can find uh, the daily shows that I create for Naked News at nakednews.com. You can also get in touch with me uh, anywhere on your social media. Laura X Desiree is where to find my accounts. And there's links to all the content that I put out available to you. So uh, get in touch. I can't wait to meet you. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right, and you can join us in two weeks where things are going to get rough. It's Red and the Expendables. Do you think you can handle it? That's coming up in two weeks. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Alicia Fletcher and Laura Desiree as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.